Hello and welcome to Transplaner RPG. We are an all transgender, person of color led, dark fantasy actual play channel featuring homebrew stories that center non colonial, anti orientalist world building and campaigns about queerness, grief, hope, and the power of love. Godkiller First Blood is a 16 part podcast miniseries that follows a mythic, violent, and transformative tale about a single mortal rising against the challenges of the divine. Tonight, your god is me, Connie Chong, and my god killer is C. Thomas. First Blood is a dark fantasy series that explores themes that may be triggering for some listeners. Content warnings for this episode may include fantasy violence, blood, classism, poverty, religious imagery, grief, trauma, death of loved ones, betrayal, childhood trauma, abandonment, romance, human experimentation, monsters and monstrosity, heights and falling, and mentions of alcohol and drug use, bullying, cannibalism, carceral oppression, and sensory deprivation. Episode 12, Tower. Kadir Graves is the scion of a powerful mortal family in the District of Wands, a primary sponsor of the Sexennial Tournament of Champions and the owner of 90% of the brothels in the Cradle. Six feet tall, broad-shouldered, and well-muscled, Kadir is a prolific merchant by day and an even more prolific playboy by night. As the rays of the star peek through the chiffon curtains of her master suite, Kadir groans, blinking her ice-blue eyes open as she rises from a tangle of bedsheets and women. Kadir rubs at a hangover throbbing behind her temples, then reaches for the whiskey on her bedside table. But just as her fingers make contact with the glass, her entire building begins to shake. Powerful quakes rip through the suite, toppling bookshelves, smashing artifacts against her carpet, and crashing the beautiful oil paintings strung along her walls to the ground. The women in her bed jolt awake, shrieking in terror, pulling the sheets up to their chins. Kadir springs to her feet, gripping the whiskey glass like a lifeline, and rushes to the open balcony, ignoring her lover's pleas to seek shelter. She staggers to a stop against the marble banister and freezes. The scene laid out before her in the District of Invention at the base of the Citadel is pure chaos. The streets are shaking. Stalls smash onto the ground. Animals run in wild terror and the people are screaming, screaming, and pointing upward toward the Citadel to the west. Something is forming behind the citadel, like a radiant halo, a dread parhelion of light. Kadir stares with wide, uncomprehending eyes, her mane of black hair unkempt against bare shoulders. And then a clap of thunder cleaves the atmosphere, and at the same time, bolts of lightning explode from the citadel's black halo, and just like that, the tower is here. 
thousands of feet tall, hundreds of feet wide. The tower is a marvelous structure of iridescent, rain-soaked stone, a shimmering spire that soars up, up, up into the air. It looms behind the citadel like an inverted shade, the white shadow of a dark god against the wall of a crumbling cathedral. Storm clouds darken the sky, obscuring the star. A massive sheet of darkness sweeps across the citadel towns at its base. A deep chill sets in, along with howling, ripping winds that threaten to tear tiles from rooftops. As the people of the citadel begin to scream and shriek and run, as the women in her bed scramble out of her room, as her entire world collapses around her. Kadir Graves lifts the whiskey to her mouth with trembling fingers and takes a sip. Rune, the doors slam shut behind you, Eos, Antigone, Pilindar, and Xiang Shen with all the finality of a coffin lid closing. You stand within a gray, shimmering atrium that is somewhere between reality and a fleeting dream. It feels like you're inside of a stone lighthouse that's been left to rot, with storm-tossed rock stairs that spiral up, up, up the walls of this chamber. Mirrors stud the walls like scales on a dragon. Mirrors of every size and shape and yes, even color. Mirrors that defy dimension and space. Mirrors that glimmer and refract your own face back at you. An infinity of times. High above your head, where the ceiling ought to be. Shifting and turning like snakes through sand are colorful, illusory images of the gods. So many gods, dozens and dozens of them, major and minor arcana, humanoid gods, animalistic gods, even gods that resemble objects, spheres of energy, rainfall, silence. These illusions dance and twirl and spin with easy grace. They are so far away and all at once closer than they have ever been before, mirages miles and miles above your head. Their movement is hypnotic. You could watch them all day, all eternity. However, you're pulled out of your trance by Antigone's voice. Where... Where are we? What is this place, Pilindar? Where did you take us? Pilindar's response is slow, careful. Zir voice like a fox, sniffing out a cleverly laid trap. This was not my doing, Lady Antigone. This is no chamber of the below. But you can sense it too, can't you? This is the doing of a god, and a powerful one at that. There is a noise like rattling shackles. Eos is pulling desperately at the handles of the doors behind you, trying to muscle them open, but they don't give. Pilindar turns away from Antigone to address the champion of the above. Champion, if my... 
instinct is correct, then no amount of mortal force can break us out of this place. Jiang Shen cuts in, sounding annoyed, but there is a distinct note of uncertainty, and perhaps even fear, beneath that perfect mask of exasperation. Oh, come on, like this day could get any worse. What god did this pill? The magician? The emperor or the empress? It is Antigone who speaks next. No. The tower. Rune, please roll to recognize a god. I am going to scream. I am currently screaming. When you want to recognize the signs or influence of a god of the cradle, roll 2d6, and you add one for each true statement. You're in or near their domain. Uh, yes, you're definitely in their domain. You're familiar with their gospel. Are you? The gospel of the tower? I am not sure. How much would I know? Mmm, not much. I think even heretics don't really like to talk about the tower. No, I don't think I'm familiar with the gospel then. Okay, it'd be bad if you didn't know. Yes, so that's a plus two. Roll 2d6. Plus two, all right. Seven. That is a hit. On a hit, you competently interpret the omens. Ask your GM a single question of your choosing, and they must answer honestly. Ooh. So after stepping off of what should have been the teleportation dais into somewhere in the below, wherever Pilandar was about to take them, finding themselves instead inside the tower with those big doors swinging shut behind them. I think ever since getting in here, Rune has been completely entranced with the mirages of the gods floating above their head. And now their head is still craned upward, their right hand pressed to their left abdomen where PM and Ajax had just stabbed through them, feeling a slow trickle of blood out of their back from the two stake wounds that had been inflicted upon them by Cerberus. And I think they're just staring upward into the never-ending top of the tower, into this miles-high chasm that seems to be inverted in on itself, going up and up and up literally forever, somehow taller than the citadel, it feels like, being inside of it. But instead of feeling like a mouse hiding from the shadow of a hawk, Rune feels like they're standing in some kind of sunbeam, like they're standing in some kind of dream, like this is the closest they've ever been to the river while still being awake in their own body. And it's only slowly that the voices of the other speakers and champions start to press in on Rune's consciousness. And as Antigone says, tower, I want to know what will happen if I take the stairs upward. Rune, you know of the tower from whispered folklore, from stories that even heretics hesitate to share, because to name the tower's gospel is to invite the tower's attention. And the last thing anyone in the cradle wants, mortal or divine, is the tower's attention. The tower is not just a god of the major arcana, it is an ill omen, a state of shattered mind. It is the place you go when chaos and doom come calling your name. The Citadel is in disarray. The King's Champion has turned her blade against him. The speakers of the above and the below are treasonous runaways. And the God Killer has revealed themselves in the seat of the Six's power. 
you know that the tower both hunts and produces upheaval. Mm. And what greater upheaval is there than the mayhem that was unleashed within the council hall not moments ago? I may have fucked up. You have definitely fucked up. Your calamity has invited the tower here, this living symbol of crisis and destruction. You also know that you cannot enter the tower if it does not want you. You cannot leave the tower if it does not want you to go. You are at its mercy. Following the stairs all the way up is quite literally the first step toward escape. That's the gut feeling that sinks into the pit of your stomach as you regard the dizzying spiral looping up, up, up into interminable illusion. I think Rune's neck is still craned upwards, still looking at those mirages of the gods in the sky. There are so many of them. How are they all here? And their hair as I think like pooled down around the nape of their neck, their throat exposed upward as they're still bleeding out, looking upward. And under their breath, Z just goes, we have to go up. I think your voice, though whispered, cut through this huddled, tight little circle. You had maybe even stood off to the side as Pilindar, Eos, Antigone, and Xiangshen were all like together and talking and talking and talking over each other. And then you speak and their huddle breaks open to turn and look at you. Pilindar quirks your head to the side, their eyes narrowed in your direction. And how do you figure that? Rune points upward like it's the simplest thing in the whole world. That's where the gods are. Those images are illusions. It could be a trap. I hate to break it to you, but we're already trapped. The higher we go, the more risk there is of falling, of danger, of death. I would prefer to take our chances on the ground level. Rune makes a show of turning in a wide circle, looking at the entire nothingness that is on this ground floor, how it is literally only the stairs and the stone and the mirrors. There's nothing for us down here. We have to go up. Don't you think it's a little bit late to be afraid of falling? You say that word afraid, and Pilindar's eyes narrow at you. Z looks like Z wants to speak, and then Z's gaze slips past you at something behind you, and their gaze widens like a fraction of a second. Antigone and Xiangshen also clock this brief movement of Pilindar's eyes. They both turn, and then Eos a second later turns as well. And all of you see that the images in the mirrors have changed. No longer do they reflect the five of you. They only reflect one of you now, Pilindar. We see dozens, hundreds, thousands of Pilindars being reflected back at the center of your party at the base of the tower. They're all staring, dead-eyed, hollow-eyed, the same way that Pilindar always stares. But all of you get the sense that they're not just looking at your group, they are looking at the speaker of the below in your mist. <laughs> what is this? Rune whips around, unsheathing their two long knives at the same moment. But there are so many different shards, there are so many different reflections, that they are unsure of where to plunge their blade first. 
so their mismatched eyes shift back and forth across all of the myriad pilandars. Eos also has their greatsword drawn, Xiangshen has her axe drawn, and Tigni shrinks behind her champion, but keeps her fists clenched by her side as her eyes dart from Pilandar to Pilandar to Pilandar. And then the actual speaker of the below whirls around and their gaze fixes upon a flitting movement through the mirrors. One figure is moving behind all of these other Pilandars, like a child running behind the skirts of an adult. And we realize it is a child running behind the skirts of an adult as we see what can only be described as a, a toddler or a child version of Pilandar running up the mirrors, kind of like up the stairs. Rune instinctively, completely just a hair trigger, immediately starts running after this small child version of Pilandar. Like they take the steps two at a time up after them. Come on, this way. Right on your heels is Pilandar. They were so reluctant to ascend the stairs a moment before, but upon seeing that version of themselves, it's like something in their face is clicking into place and their timidity, their risk avoidance is being overshadowed by their desire to need to know more. And you get the feeling it's not just curiosity. You get the feeling that there's something else stirring within Pilandar, a, a hook behind their navel that's pulling them upward, upward, onward. Perhaps a way that the tower is speaking to them, that it's not currently speaking to you or anyone else. Hmm. Following you and Pilandar are the rest of the champions and the speaker. And Antigone just lets out a kind of ruin pill. She lets out a quick, exasperated and kind of scared sigh, but hurries up the stairs with Eos a half step behind. As your group ascends, the images in the mirrors flanking the wall that you're running parallel to begin to ripple and tessellate like fluid glass scales over the surface of a frozen lake. And as they tessellate, all the adult Pilandars kind of puzzle shift to click into that same constantly repeating image of Pilandar as a small, hollow-eyed toddler. And as all of you continue going up these stairs, it's like you're moving physically through a flipbook. If you were to stand still, these images would stop moving alongside you as well. We see now this small toddler Pilandar hiding behind the pant trousers of Zir Mother as other children in the Citadel play in a colorful garden that starts to bloom through the fragments of these mirrors all around you. We see Pilandar's mother trying to push Pilandar forward to join these other kids, and for a moment, the speaker of the below looks like they'll join the others, but then they think better of it. And they run, and they hide back behind their mother's pant leg. And then this memory shatters and reforms, like a flock of birds dispersing and then coming back together. And now we see Pilandar, seven years old, walking down a hallway with a book clutched to Zir's chest. They pass by an open door, where they see a group of older kids picking on a younger child, smearing rotten fruit over this child, calling them names. And one name sticks out in particular, Heretic. We see Pilandar hesitate. We see the seven-year-old gripping their book close to their chest. They look like they want to intervene, but then they think better of it and keep walking. 
Next, we see Pilindar, now 11 years old, poring over huge, thick tomes of religious texts in a dusty library. Next to them is Antigone, also 11, her little twin braids barely drooping past the middle of her back. Antigone is deep in her studies, her brow knotted over this ancient text, her hand falling open on the table, palm upward, as she uses the other to flip through these texts. Pilindar gazes gently at that outstretched open hand. Z looks like Z wants to reach out and hold it, but then they think better of it and return to the books. And then we see Pilindar, 13, sitting in an audience of citadel royalty at the front of a temple as Antigone is crowned speaker by Pontiff Phileos. We don't see Antigone's face, but we do see Pilindar's. Zir brow is wrinkled, Zir gaze is dark, and for a moment, Z looks like Z wants to stand up, interrupt the coronation, say something, anything. But then they think better of it and join the applause. And it's at this point on Pilindar, 13 years old, with the rest of Citadel royalty on their feet, applauding, applauding, with Antigone at the front of a procession, that Pilindar stops running. Pilindar stares at this reflection of their memory, their face even more pale than it has ever been. <laughs> yes, of course, these mirrors show our true names, our lingering ghosts, and mine has of course always been my cowardice, my timidity. Rune was maybe three or four steps ahead of Pilindar, I think, and Z turns over their shoulder, pausing, like a spider suspended in their own web for a moment. And they hesitate, feeling the pull to continue upward and onward, feeling something deep in their chest asking them, no, not asking, demanding that they rise. But they pause. And they turn and take two steps down the stairs toward where Pilindar has waited looks into Zir's face, looks into the mirror, looks back at the speaker of the below. And Pilindar finally tears their gaze away from the mirror to look at you. Their face is set, their expression is dark, but there's something finally solid behind it. I have always been a heretic. I have always longed for a better cradle. A cradle where gods and mortals are equals, as is just. But I have never had the true courage to act on my ideals. Antigone cuts in, looking and sounding affronted, shocked. Enough with this nonsense! Enough with this blabbering about you being a heretic! I, I, uh, there, there must be a way out that isn't... Pilindar turns around to look at Antigone, who's several steps beneath them. And you can't see Pilindar's face, because their back is to you, but something in their expression must be meaningful, must be special, must be a brand of Pilindar that they've never really shown Antigone before, because you do see Antigone's face, and it goes a little bit bloodless, it goes a little bit pale, and she closes her mouth and looks up at Pilindar with a such deep, plaintive, pleading expression that you've never seen before on her face either. Lady Antigone, I have used my legacy as a sentinel 
an archivist, a scribe, as an excuse for passivity. I told myself the lie that other heretics were simply doing what I could not, when in reality, I was starving the cradle of a better chance than if I had acted. Pilindar now turns to look back at you. I could have done something, anything, like Tiang had. Tiang realized the limits of their legacy as Sentinel, and they broke free of the chains that bound them, even though the cost was immense. Pilindar glances at Xiang Shen at that, whose eyes are downcast, dark, furious. Pilindar goes on to say, But things are changing. I am changing. The news of the devil's disappearance has spurred me into action. Too much is at stake for me to continue not doing anything. That's why I volunteered to tend to your family's graves, Lady Antigone. It was the least I could do. And in the Northern Dead Zone, I found something. Something that I hope will guide the God Killer into their fullest self. And now, with mounting urgency, inside the Temple of the Broken Star, I saw and Pilindar is gone. Just like that. In the middle of their sentence, they are gone. No longer inside the atrium, no longer upon that stair. It is as though they have just vanished. Pil! And Xiangshan now cutting in, running up to the step that Pilindar had just vacated. Pilindar! Pilindar! Pilindar, where the hells are you? This isn't funny. Show yourself. Pil! I really don't think that Z is the type to joke around. I think the tower let them out. Out? Out? And this is Eos speaking up for the first time. What do you mean, out? The only way out were those doors down at the bottom of this place, and I couldn't open them. No, that's not a way out. The tower... If the tower doesn't want you, it'll spit you out. Hilandar came to some kind of... conclusion. And I guess the tower didn't need them anymore. Didn't want them anymore. Antigone now, cutting in an edge of that frenetic shock that you recognize from in Baby when you first left Iron 42, beginning to creep back into her face. Now that Pilindar is gone, you get the sense that this other speaker is maybe an anchoring force, like almost mm. like a comforting blanket or something. And now that they're gone, Antigone is like the only speaker left, maybe like the only person with any sort of authority outside of the tower, and that pressure is starting to crack her. She looks at you with wide eyes, but her voice is like a simulacrum of control, like she's trying her best not to lose her shit. No, 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 that can't... First of all, how would you even know that that's what's happening? And second of all, Pill wouldn't... They wouldn't... Z wouldn't just leave us. Z wouldn't just leave me. Z wouldn't just leave Zier Champion if they had a choice, which means that the, the tower, if the tower's just spitting us out willy-nilly, that means any one of us could go at any point. And, and I... And you see Eos turn and look at Antigone with such naked concern in their face. This was the same kind of concern that they wore when they challenged you to a duel to the death on the bridge over Chemical 4. Mm. Without a word... 
Eos draws her greatsword, turns and smashes it against that wall of mirrors. She just starts wailing on it. As soon as her blade connects with the glass, it just kind of bounces off uselessly, right? Like a needle against the carapace of a massive dragon. But that doesn't stop Eos. She keeps banging her sword, banging it, banging it, banging it against the mirrors and sparks start to fly and Antigone flinches and cowers away a little bit from the noise. But with every thud, it's like Eos is trying to remove the source of Antigone's anxiety, again, through the only means she knows how, violence. Rune flinches hard as the first clang of metal on mirror rings out. And I think they start descending the steps as fast as they can, again, two at a time, downward toward Eos grabbing, I think, first at her forearm, then her shoulder, then her arm. Eos, stop, stop, stop it, enough. I refuse to accept that the only way out of this place is on this thing's terms. I am going to carve a path out of here for Lady Antigone and for the rest of us if it's the last thing I do. Are you going to help me or not, God Killer? Are you going to live up to your name? We can't, we can't. That's not how it's done. It's not how this place works. Every god has a heart, has a downfall, okay? It's not so easy as just hitting them with your sword over and over and over again. Then stand back and let me act while you do nothing. And Eos turns around to lift her blade again, but freezes, as every single reflection in every single mirror now shows her shows Eos, with that great sword lifted above her head, with her face a contortion of rage and violence, and yes, fear. Eos freezes. Antigone is also staring, Jiangshen is also staring, and out of Antigone's mouth, a quivering whisper, Eos? Eos's gaze snaps down to her speaker, but the other Eoses in the mirrors don't move. They remain staring forward at your party, swords raised. And then movement, again, through the mirrors. A different Eos walking behind this line of soldiers. A smaller Eos, a preteen Eos, scrawny and unkempt, walking forward, moving up the stairs once more. Eos, Eos, please, come on. Look, I... I, you, and Eos starts running up the stairs, chasing that scrawny preteen version of herself that we only see in bits and glimpses as it moves between like these adult Eos's bodies. And it feels like, again, like as soon as seeing herself reflected back at her, you get the sense that maybe there's, there's a sensation or a calling within Eos, similar to maybe how it had tugged at Pilindar that's now compelling the champion to move onward and upward. Eos! Rune's gaze slides sideways over to Jiangshen for half of a second, a kind of open, bloodless look coming over their face as their skin is starting to pale out underneath their eyes, around their cheeks. They've lost quite a bit of blood and they're still losing it, but they give her a kind of like firm and determined look, gesture with their head really fast up at Eos before reaching out to take Antigone's hands, running down a few more steps after her. Come on. Come on, princess, let's go. I, yes, yes, let, let's go. We, we have to catch up to Eos. And Antigone reaches down and takes your hand. And Rune starts pulling them both along again, probably much faster than Antigone can take the stairs, but still pulling them forward as fast as they can after Eos. 
Mm. And I think bringing up the rear is Xiang Shen, who has long since sheathed their axe and is now just grumbling and growling her way up these stairs behind you. And as you ascend, you notice two things. The first is that you're reaching the bottom of the beginning of the illusions that kind of take up the entire ceiling of the tower. You're beginning to pass in the middle of this huge hole to your right. Ghostly images of all the gods of the cradle. I don't know if you recognize many of them, if not most of them, but they're definitely gods. Angel-like gods, demon-like gods, bat-like gods, bird-like gods, rabbit-like gods, gods shaped like houses, gods shaped like stones, gods that just sound like music and have no form, gods that are sparking roiling clouds of energy, gods that are blades of grass waving in the wind, gods that look like beautiful men and handsome women, gods that look like frogs, gods that look like blades crossed, gods that look like open mouths in prayer. So many different kinds of gods, all dancing, all moving, all intertwined with each other and glowing and radiant and shimmering as you go up, up, up. The second thing you notice is, of course, the images, nay, the memories in the mirrors playing out begin to shift. We see images of Eos as that preteen, dominating every single mirror fragment on the circular walls of the tower. Scrawny, unkempt, and now rummaging through garbage bins for food. We hear a whistle, an echoing whistle, cut through this memory, and we see Eos turn around and stare distrustfully at the woman who now stands at the mouth of this alleyway. This woman flashes a slice of bread. Preteen Eos's eyes go wide. They run over and they grab the slice and start tearing into it. We watch now as this woman introduces Eos to the world of the labs in Chemical 4. We watch as this woman trains Eos, teaches them to be the perfect volunteer, but more than that, to be a part of something greater than even herself an interdependent network of coats and rats striving toward innovation. We cut to an older Eos, a teenager now, with new muscle on her frame and an extra foot of height, the perfect volunteer. We watch as she runs through experimental mazes, as she wrestles monsters, as she flings herself into danger so others don't get hurt. And now we cut to an adult Eos, very similar to the one that's now running up the stairs in front of you, but with a much longer shaggy mane of hair, fully grown, passing her days in the labs. Eat, sleep, work. Eat, sleep, work. Eat, sleep, work. The perfect volunteer, fit, teachable, and most importantly, with no goals or ideals of her own, only the ones she internalized from Chemical 4. And then we see the day Eos's life changes. An experiment chamber with white walls, a hulking beast on one end of the room, Eos on the other. Behind a pane of bulletproof glass, we see an eager line of scientists, and this is new, Citadel emissaries. One of these emissaries catches Eos's eye, a woman in white robes with black hair braided in twin whips and eyes that are the saddest eyes Eos has ever seen. 
The monster charges forward, growling, howling, but instead of attacking Eos, it flings itself at the glass. The window shatters. Scientists go flying. The beast rears up on its hind legs, bearing down upon this woman with sad eyes and without thinking, without knowing why she's doing it, without being asked. Eos rushes forward and slays the beast. The next images that come are of Eos as Antigone's champion, always following her a half-step behind, always protecting. Eat, sleep, work. Eat, sleep, work. Eat, sleep, work. The perfect champion, fit, teachable, and most importantly, with no goals or ideals of her own, only the ones she internalized from the Citadel. A life so different, and yet so exactly the same as the one she had in chemical form. And it is on this recurring motif of Eos' champion, a half-step behind Antigone, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep, work, that the physical Eos comes to a stop, staring at this memory now frozen in time of herself following Antigone down a hallway. She remains silent, watching this memory play out with a clenched jaw. You and Antigone catch up a half moment later, and then Xiangshen behind the two of you. Antigone looks from the mirror to Eos, back at the mirror, back at her champion again. There is urgency and there is sadness in her voice. Eos, Eos, when you look in the mirror, is this really all you see? Eos, you are so much more than what this shows. No. No, my lady. The tower does not lie. But it does lie. It is lying, Eos. You are so much more than just a blade to me. You... You... I... am a weapon. And Eos turns to look down at Antigone with her eyes shining, not with rage, but with sadness, just like Antigone's. I... am violence given name and form. I don't know how I could possibly begin to be anything else. Those tears, that's right, tears, are starting to well in Eos's eyes, tears that the champion of the above is absolutely refusing to let fall. And her next words are the most uncertain you've ever heard her speak. My entire life I have done what others have told me was right. Strive for innovation. Obey the rules. Protect the speaker. My speaker. When I, when I met you, I, I thought to myself, now there's a cause worth dying for. Eos, I don't want to be a cause worth dying for. I know that's what the Citadel says a champion should be, the most perfect, loyal protector, but that's not what I want. All I have ever wanted, Eos, is a friend. What do you want? My shining champion. The darkness lifts from Eos's face like a storm cloud vanishing in the presence of light. Eos reaches a hand down toward Antigone, an uncertain, wavering hand, but a hand nonetheless. 
And as the next words tumble from her mouth, the champion glances in your direction, Vroon, as you had asked them the exact same thing on that bridge in Chemical 4. Then Eos turns her gaze back to Antigone. I... I want to one day put down my sword, my lady, and pick up a plow, a trowel, a rake, a tool not meant for killing but for helping new things grow. I want to raise ducks and learn how to cook and how to fix cars. I want to live somewhere small and forgettable and put more life into this world than I have ever taken out of it. But most of all, I... I want to grow old with you. And Eos is gone. Antigone, whose hands were outstretched in search of her champions, gasps, stumbles forward a little bit, loses her footing almost, and then sets her jaw, clenches her fists by her side. No, 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 no. Eos, Eos, no! No, Eos, don't leave me! I, I... When they had reached Eos, Rune had let go of Antigone's hand, feeling it slip out of theirs as she ascended the stairs. And as the two of them talked, almost like when you find yourself audience to an extremely private moment, Rune had turned away, staring into the mirages of the gods that flittered and floated and danced around the two of them. But Antigone and Eos's words had pierced through them, so much so that they weren't able to look away to give them the privacy they felt like they needed. And now Rune comes forward, throwing an arm over Antigone's shoulders, as I think they both sink to their knees on the stairs, halfway up the tower. Come on, princess, it's okay. Antigone is crying. I think she's crying into your chest. She just kind of doesn't even resist, doesn't even flinch away at the god killer, this heretic touching her. She lets you fold her into your grasp and she curls up almost like a ball in a fetal position and cries against your chest. Her words are unintelligible, almost undecipherable coming out. You can hear bits and snatches of it. Eos here, champion there. No, no, no. Xiang Shen. This whole time, watching this entire exchange up until the point that Eos disappeared, completely impassively, though her jaw had been clenched, and like Antigone, her fist had been curled up into a tight ball next to her waist. And then Xiang Shen spits, kind of through gritted teeth. I've had enough of this place. I'm finding a way out of here. Rune looks up over their shoulder at her. Just wait a second, okay? Wait a second. Wait a second. How much longer do I have to wait to get the hell out of this hell? And you get the sense that Xiang Shen isn't just talking about the tower. Because on that last word, hell, there is a sound like, I think, like a clap of thunder. And a bright light pulses and explodes through the center of the tower as storm clouds begin roiling through these beautiful illusions of all the gods dominating the center of this column. We see these gods no longer dancing with each other, right? No longer just drifting and holding and twisting and turning, but they begin to turn inward at each other. They begin to grow agitated. 
Jiangshen whips around, startling and flinching at the noise. Antigone stiffens and curls herself even deeper into your grasp. And you turn and look as you see these gods beginning to... What is that? Eat each other? That's right. You see a god that resembles a shark, an actual shark, darting upward using its two mouths to chomp down at the wings of a wyvern-like god who lets out a soundless shriek but then is consumed by this other arcana. We see a massive hammer swing down and smash a god that resembles an orb of glass, splintering them into a thousand pieces, grabbing onto the shards and then stuffing them into their mouth. We see blood, radiant golden, red, black, silver, green, emerald, sapphire, blue, hollow blood begin to spill and cascade like fireworks. And you hear Antigone now whispering, whimpering almost against your chest, the devouring. These are images of the devouring. That's the Four of Cups. That's the Nine of Wands. That's. Oh, this is too awful to look at. This is too awful to see. Don't look. Don't look. Edrin tucks her against their chest. Don't look. Don't look. Come on. It's going to be okay. Jiang Shen, who is younger than the two of you, looks. She looks at this illusion of the devouring playing out as these beautiful, formerly dancing gods now turn on each other. And she snarls. <laughs> Leave it to the gods to ruin a good thing. All right, Tower, you took my speaker. You took the champion of the above. Come take me. Show me what you've got, huh? Pilandar might not have been ready. Eos might not have been ready to get out of here, but I sure the hell am. Just because Rune is there and their divinity is active and there's something about this moment of the gods turning on each other, the devouring, that this place feels so familiar, feels so much like home, feels so much like the river, feels so close to something deep inside of them that had been humming through their chest and now as it's being ripped apart. Can I roll to challenge someone dangerous on behalf of the <gasps> champion of the below? <laughs> yes! Yes, you can. So when you challenge someone dangerous in front of an audience, say what foolish or risky action you hope they'll take and roll 2d6. So what foolish or risky action do you hope presumably the tower will take? I hope that the tower will heed her call. <laughs> okay. How are you trying to help Jiangshen in this moment? Like physically or verbally, what do you do? As this storm starts to roll in, I imagine that the tower itself starts to shake. Like the stairs are starting to become a little bit more unstable mm. as these claps of thunder are rolling through the inside of the tower as the ground itself is starting to crumble and become very, very tumultuous. And I think seeing this, an instant kind of panic rolls through Rune, like a lightning bolt of its own. And they take one of their long knives from their waist and still holding on to Antigone, flings it outward for Jiangshen to take, to hold the other end so she doesn't fall. And they go, champion, heads up. I really like that. Yeah, your sword sails through the air in Jiangshen's direction. She turns on reflex on instinct and grabs the handle of it. And I need you to roll 2d6. Uh, add one for each true statement. They care about your opinion? I would say so, yes. Mm. They think they're stronger than you. Yes. The crowd is on your side. Yeah. Because the crowd okay. is Antigone and Jiangshen, so that's a plus three. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh god. Now is not the time. Uh, 13. 
That's an overkill. So on a 10 plus, you push too far. The action is taken, but your target acts immediately and violently. I think what happens is as soon as Xiangshen takes that sword, a stray strobe of lightning explodes outward from that central storm and hits it like it's a lightning rod. Oh my god. It spiders off of the steel and chains itself to the mirror. And this lightning explodes and jumps faster than the eye can track across every single mirror inside the tower. And every single zap changes the surface of the reflection. So it's no longer reflecting the three of you back at each other, but just Jiang Shen. Jiang Shen, the physical one, lets out a shout of brief pain and drops the uh, sword as though burned. And it does look red hot now, right? There's a little bit of smoke rising from Jiang Shen's hand and they're sort of like shaking it out. And the sword clatters onto the ground and then I think tips over to the edge and starts falling down, but then catches on the chain, right? So now the sword's mm-hmm. just kind of dangling whatever like 30 foot length of chain you have mm-hmm. over the edge of the staircase. Mm-hmm. I imagine that it went through Rune as well. Yes, 100%. So I need you to mark one more strain. Oh God. From that. I think you're at four now. I do believe I'm at four now. <laughs> okay. Yikes. Jiang Shen lets out a... Oh, God! Oh, great, it's me now. And sure enough, it is Jiang Shen now. As we see a version of Jiang Shen that looks exactly like themselves standing there, still with your sword aloft in her hand, we see blue lightning and red lightning and green lightning and black lightning zapping off the edge of this blade. And we also see a figure running behind this version of Xiangshen with the sword held aloft. A small figure. A figure that looks like Xiangshen if she were three years old. As soon as Xiangshen's eyes fall upon this version of herself, her face sharpens. It darkens and it narrows, just like it had for Eos and for Pilindar. All right, you motherfucker. Here I come. And Xiangshen turns and starts pursuing herself up the stairs. From like five, ten steps below, Rune pulls himself up off the ground and staggers upward, swaying a little bit under the shaking stairs, under the blood loss, under the electric shock that is still kind of coursing through their bloodstream. They wobble upward toward Antigone, reaching another hand out for her to help pull her up. Come on, can't let the kid get too far ahead. Antigone had actually scrambled down a couple of steps to reach where you are. She looks genuinely very concerned for your health and for your livelihood. And Antigone looks down at you and goes, Ruin, are you okay? Fine. Average day in the life of the god killer. Let's go. You're not looking so good. Fine. Dianxian, maybe we should maybe we should take a break. Maybe we should go back down. Maybe that will stop the storm. I don't think it stops now. I think we have to keep going until we're out of it. Antigone looks at you with this, like, intense, deep, desperate pleading. Like the look of someone who doesn't have a single step left to run, but is being told they need to stick it out for another mile. I... I... I, I don't... I don't... There's no turning back now, princess. Come on. Come with me. Wordlessly, Antigone shoots her hand out to reach for yours. Rune takes her hand. You guide Antigone up the stairs, helping her push through her physical limits, following Jiangshen up. And as you do, 
just like it had been for Pilindar and Eos, we see a memory start to fragment, spider, and lightning bolt strike itself through these mirrors, as we see a three-year-old Jiang Shen standing at the bottom of a mineshaft elevator, next to the other royalty of the below. Unlike their speakers, the champions of the below are raised in the darkness, not in the citadel, meeting their speakers only when they both come of age. So this young three-year-old Xiang Shen, we see her now standing in front of the knees and waists and skirts of the adults of her family, threading her fingers together with a kind of nervousness that does not befit such a young child, certainly not Xiang Shen. And kneeling in front of Xiang Shen is Xiang. Rune, Xiang looks so different in this memory, and yet exactly the same. He is muscular, he's dressed in dark leather armor, his hair is maybe a touch shorter than you remember, and he has a massive axe strapped to his back. He is saying something to his daughter, something that the mortal failures of memory have eroded into meaningless nothingness. But Xiang's mouth is smiling, and his eyes are shining with tears. He ruffles his daughter's hair. He straightens up. He turns around. And he boards the elevator and is gone. And he does not look back. As the adults around Jiang Shen begin to cry and pray, we see that this three-year-old's face is flat, unexpressive. And then a single emotion flits across it, an emotion that Xiang Shen would come to wear as second nature. Rage. Now we see Xiang Shen as a seven-year-old, running past servants and wardens like a mouse evading a maze of cats, sprinting toward one of the many elevator shafts that lead up, 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 out of the below. But before she can fling herself onto a platform and toward freedom, an adult grabs her by the scruff and drags her back into the darkness, literally kicking and screaming. And we flash through the next years of Jiang Shen's life in rapid measure, chronicling every time she rages, every time she screams, every time she tries to escape the below as her father had, and fails. And when Jiang Shen turns 18 and meets her speaker for the first time, she has attempted escape 423 times. It is only after meeting Pilindar and learning of Zir heresy that Xiang Shen stops trying to run. In exchange, she makes herself a promise. When the cradle changes, when the god killer finally comes, she is going to find the only man who has ever escaped the below and beat the freedom out of him that she had always been denied. On Xiang Shen now, frozen upon the stairs, watching herself in the darkness, kneeling in front of a statue of the judge, making this oath to herself. An oath that only Pilindar and her are privy to. Her face is turned away from you and Antigone. Before either of you say jack shit, just know that if you even think about the phrase daddy issues, I'm gonna throw a brick through your head. Not at your head, through it. As Rune ascends the stairs, there is a gutless feeling starting to rise in them as the violence of the gods becomes more and more feverish, becomes more and more vicious. 
I think every time a god dies in these mirages and these ghosts swirling through the interior of the tower, it feels like something inside of Rune dies as well. Something gets weaker, a light gets pushed further and further down like they're falling through a well. And Z releases Antigone's hand and starts cresting the stairs toward Jiangshan. Bloodless smirk coming across their face. <laughs> Get in line. You know what? He left when I was three. I barely knew him, and frankly, I barely care. I don't hate him so much as I hate what he represents. Because he got to leave the below. He got to make a deal with the judge and leave and have a different life completely. I didn't. I never got that. Because I'm the last scion of the champions of the below, and if I leave, then there's no one left. So I can't just abandon my responsibilities like he did, like he got to. The only thing that could possibly get me my freedom is if the entire foundation of the cradle changes. And Jiangshan turns and looks down at you, and the storm in the center of the tower is reflected in her face. Which is why I'm here. Why I'm helping Pilindar. That, and because they're a great person, frankly, a person you don't deserve. And that's directed at Antigone beside you, who looks confused and shocked and offended, and her face is still streaked with tears, and she's looking up at Xiangshen uncomprehendingly. But then Xiangshen turns back to face you, Rune, and says, The council learned everything from Eureka. We learned about Athamos, we learned about the chariot, and we learned about you being a heretic and you being the so-called god killer. And the only way someone from outside the below can possibly have become the god killer, or even know what the god killer is, is if Xiang had told them. Which obviously means you knew Xiang. Which is why as soon as you walked into that room, I knew I fucking hated you. A deeply sad smile breaks across Rune's face, like it just cracks open their expression. As they finally come one more step, another, another, until they're standing probably a step or two below Jiangshan, but are eye level with her. Yeah, I knew him. He left me too. No, please. He left you to make the god killer. He chose you to be the god killer, which I don't even know what's so special about you. Any heretic who knows their way around a sword could be the god killer. But I guess it was you. And I guess he left you just like he left me. And Rune turns to look into the mirror, where the reflection of a younger Zhang with his back turned to the image. Yeah. He made the god killer. He chose me. And I needed him. I needed him to help me. And he left too soon. He left you too soon. I don't know why he chose me. He never said. I didn't want power. I wanted a family. At that, Xiangshen's jaw clenches, her brow tightens, and something begins to shine in her eyes, and she blinks very quickly to press them back in. But I can't leave either. Stuck down in the dark just like you are. Because if I leave, how are you ever gonna get yourself out of the below how are you ever going to make that last escape that you need how is anyone rune gestures widely out at the gods 
How are they ever going to rest? How are they ever going to stop? The promise I made to myself, I clearly can't keep. Because Xiang is gone. He's gone. He left to make you. To make you possible. Which means I won't be able to kick his fucking ass. So I need to make myself a new promise. And her eyes, shining with those unfalling tears, fix on you. When we get out of this place, when we see what Pilandar has to show you in the northern dead zone, and when you fully understand what it means to be a god killer, I'm gonna kick your ass. <laughs> Bring it on, little sis. <laughs> Don't call me little- And she's gone. And it's just you and Antigone, and the howling of the storm, and the twisting of the blood of the gauze in the center of the tower to your right. Rune wobbles a little bit, completely unsteady on their feet now. And I think they even have to reach out and touch the mirror on the left side of the stairs to keep themselves from falling completely over. And their hand goes back up to that wound at their side, feeling the pull in their scapula. The wounds aren't bleeding anymore, but they feel so deep. And Rune makes a small pained noise. <sighs> Every moment that a god dies in the center of the tower, pulling at them, draining at them, stripping away their divinity, they turn over their shoulder to look at where Antigone is standing. You're not gonna pray over me again? I. What? Okay, first of all, the witness can't hear me from inside here. Believe me, I've tried praying to him. But I. Yes, I am going to just take us to the top. You got it, princess. Come on. And Rune starts climbing the stairs. As you ascend, the storm in the center of the tower grows worse. There are fewer gods now. Many of them are dead in pieces, sundered little bits of flesh and golden rays of light and shattered color. The ones that remain are coiling and dark and radiant and strong and clever and cowardly. You're beginning to recognize, I think, symbols and images of the gods that linger after the first crush of the devouring. Over there, isn't that? Why, yes, it is. It is Athamos's white centipedal body coiling up, up, up in a spiral. And then over there, that's some kind of noxious cloud, a fume, a vulture-shaped toxic mist that is Eureka. And you see the major arcana that have survived as well. You see a sword being clutched in the hands of two intertwined beings, the Emperor and the Empress. You see a massive priest with his head inclined toward clasped prayer beads, and every knot of his hair a different radiant prayer, the Hierophant. You see the veiled face of the magician, the turning spokes of the wheel of fortune. You see the massive axe-headed judgment. And yes, as you continue upward, you see the world whom we call witness. A single roving, ever-searching eye at the very top of this pillar, still, I think, miles ahead of you, but that people blinking, blinking, traveling, looking, looking. As you ascend, Antigone notices the witness's eye as well, and she hesitates for a half second, her foot half planted on a step. <gasps> oh, that's not really him, it's just an illusion of him. Oh, but it looks so real. It feels pretty real. 
Well, if it were actually him, no doubt he would pull us out of here, given that his champion is outside and his speaker is still trapped within. You love him? I... Well, of course I do. I am his speaker. I am devoted to him. I worship him. I honor him. Why? What? Why? Why do you love him? Enrin's face is streaked with rain now, with this bloody, bloody rain. And it's so honest, the question. Because... Because... And every single image in the mirrors that surround you begin to change. Instead of reflecting the two of you back at each other, an infinity of times we see now only Antigone. Antigone quickly turns, her hand, I think, clenching over your fingers as these images shift and she sees herself. Huh. And then, just like with Pilandar, Eos, and Xiangshen, there is a fleeting movement behind all these infinite versions of Antigone. A small child in white robes running up the stairs. And that same kind of look settles over Antigone's face, a kind of compulsion forward, a deep gnawing hunger, a need to press onward. She tears her gaze away from the mirror, looks up at you, and then past you at the infinite stairs continuing to spiral upward. I... I need to go. I need to follow. I... Go. Right behind you. Don't leave me. I won't. Promise you still have to break my curse when we're out of here, right? Promise I'm not going anywhere. Go. Without another word, Antigone nods, squeezes your hand, and then starts going up the stairs past you. And as you follow Antigone a half step behind, we see all these mirror images of her shift and change and tessellate and ripple with iridescence to reveal a memory. We see Antigone sing as a child, sitting around a circular dining table, surrounded by a big family. Older brothers, parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncle, cousins. She is easily the baby of the family by many years, three years old and already using chopsticks by herself. We see her brothers pulling faces to make her laugh, her uncles secretly sliding an extra salted cucumber onto her plate, her favorite dish, her father redoing her braids, her mother boasting about how she can already read the prologue to the star song all by herself. We see Antigone sing, seven now, pacing up and down a long hallway, reciting a 5,000-word-long religious poem out loud through rote memorization alone. She pauses in front of the closed door at the end of the hallway, the door behind which her family convenes every week to discuss grown-up things, the door that her mother, the speaker of the above, tells Antigone she cannot open until she comes of age. Antigone is curious about the door. She is also frustrated. She is seven years old, and she knows words like atrophy and sanctimonious and what a complex number is and all the dates and locations of all the major clashes of the devouring. 
Her family trusts her with performing sacred rites and cleansing the witness's eyes and even handling his golden ichor, which is unstable and burns, but they do not trust her with what is behind that door. Antigone thinks about opening it, but she knows it is locked. She sighs and continues pacing. We see Antigone sing, 13 now, head bowed before the shrine in the inner temple as she had been called to do. Above the altar, the carved eye of the witness gazes down upon her and he peers into her mind. He looks for doubt, but Antigone has none. The witness confesses to her that he suspects blasphemy amongst his closest confidants, but Antigone is as sure as the root of a mountain that he is misguided. So sure is she of her family's faith, of her family's purity, that she lets the witness gaze through her eyes as though they were his. Imbued with his divinity, Antigone Singh opens the door that should not be opened, and the witness sees all. Twenty-one mortals huddled around a table. Blasphemous texts flung open, plans of violence drawn upon parchment. The witness cries, conspiracy, treason, heresy. And though Antigone tries to calm him, tries to assure him there is a misunderstanding, surely these are not blasphemous texts, but sacred ones, not plans of violence, but plans of worship, but it is too late. The witness channels his fury through her eyes, and with one look strikes terror in their mortal hearts, and slays them all. Antigone is thirteen and she is being coronated in front of the royals of the citadel. Pontiff Phileos is placing her mother's golden crown upon her head, and her family name, Singh, has been struck from every record in every book of the below, the above, and the earthly realms in an act of ultimate cleansing. During her ascension, she tithes a sense to the witness as is tradition. Her mother had tithed sight, Antigone now, thinking of her family, of the meals they used to share, of the salted cucumbers, feels a heavy leaden weight on her tongue, the weight of their lives, the weight of their souls, and Antigone tithes taste. We see Antigone as a woman now, and her eyes are the saddest eyes in the cradle, and her station in the citadel is the lowest station of the council. Her uncle had been champion. She has none now, only a rotation of miserable servants with no real talent for fighting or loyalty. She stalks the halls of the citadel as a white-robed ghost, as sure as the root of a mountain that she will feel the presence of her mother, her father, her brothers, her aunts, her cousins, her uncle, in every shadow of every corner of the citadel until the day she joins them in the river once more. Antigone is paused on the staircase. She is looking at this memory of herself. She is not moving, she is only staring. Rune follows the memories of the speaker of the above upward toward her, each step taking a lifetime of energy. They mount the stairs. 
until they're two below her, looking up into their face. Antigone. They... They... weren't... weren't... heretics. They couldn't have been heretics. Because they were good people. And the witness doesn't punish good people. The witness punishes heretics, blasphemers, witches, apostates who threaten the stability of the cradle. And my family were good people. They were not heretics. Their deaths are my fault and mine alone. Not the witnesses, not theirs, mine. This mistake, this misunderstanding was seen through my eyes. It was carried out by my hand. This is on me. No. Yes. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's not. How could it be? Fruin, don't you understand? They can't have been heretics because if they were, then that means, that means they were conspiring against the witness and that he was right to kill them and they deserved to die. And I, 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 don't know how I could live with that. That's not what that means. What if they were both? What? What if they were both? What if they were good people and heretics? That's impossible. Is it? Look at me. Antigone looks at you. Is it? I... I... I don't know. Everything has been so irrevocably impossibly, overwhelmingly, just so upside down. Ever since I came to Iron 42, ever since I met you, everything has been so, just so wrong. Up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right and, and the God Killer exists and I- Antigone. I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. I've never not known. I have always known. I am the speaker of truth. I am the tongue of knowledge. It is my job. It is my duty. It is the only thing I can do is to know. Antigone. To have faith. To worship. To worship. Antigone. He's all I have. Rune closes the distance between the two of them. What if it was not your family that was bad? What if it was him? What if he is undeserving of your love, of your worship, of your devotion? What I, 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 I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I, because that would mean, that would mean, that would mean my entire life. I, I, I have served, I have, I have devoted, I have worshipped, I have worshipped the God that, that destroyed me. This shouldn't... I shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be me. I... The gods do not love us back. Maybe they did once upon a time. But they don't anymore. Once upon a time. And a faraway, dreamlike look almost comes over Antigone's face when you say that. And we see the mirrors flicker once more and a different memory as Antigone is remembering it is dredged up from the recesses of her mind. 
We see Antigone as a young girl, seven, perhaps eight, maybe, tucked into bed, her mother next to her, with a slate of braille open upon her lap, her fingers crawling over the dots as her mother reads out a story. And though we see Antigone's mother's lips move, it is Antigone who says out loud, Once upon a time, the gods loved us. They descended from the river in the sky, and they taught us how to worship. They taught us how to speak and build homes and cook food. They taught us what to do and what not to do, how to think and how not to think. They taught us to pray, to obey, to devote. And finally, after we had proven our faith, the gods taught us magic. Once upon a time, the gods loved us. Then the river dried up, and the gods were stranded here, and their magic was running out. The first god to slay another was the world whom we call Witness. And she freezes on that and looks up at that illusion of the Witness's eye glimmering in the literal eye of the storm above your heads. The Witness had always been wary of violent plots, but I never understood. I never knew why he would be so scared of a group of mortals, his closest confidants. I, it would have been a betrayal for sure, but it would have been no threat to him. There is nothing a mortal could have done against a god that could threaten them. Unless... Unless, unless my family, they, I, I remember that day only in bits and pieces and shattered fragments of recollection, but I do remember seeing a book, a book laid out with words that jumped out at me, words about, about the star and a tear falling from the sky and the outstretched palm of judgment below, which is, which is why what you described back in Chemical 4, it rattled me. It was as though you had plucked a memory from the deepest recesses of my mind and spoken it into existence. A memory you call the Godkiller Prophecy. Open shock paints its way over Rune's face. Their mismatched gaze slides over and counts in the reflection of the mirror Antigone's family members. 21. Same number of heretics who died, making the god killer. Their eyes fall back on Antigone. Antigone is wordlessly, silently, slowly shaking her head. She is much too smart to not know the exact conclusion you're drawing. She can't speak it out loud. She can't. Rune leans inward, pressing the distance close between them. They chose you. They were heretics. No. They were beautiful. No. They believed that you could change the cradle. They believed that you could make a different world. A world where you did not love to receive nothing but violence. And, and he, he, he told me they were, what 
do I do with this? What do I do with this, Ruin? Ruin takes both of her cheeks in their hands, cupping her face. You fight. You make them pay. You make him pay. Her face cupped in your hands, Antigone's eyes travel up to look at the eye of the witness above her head. And when her eyes travel back down to look at you, there is an expression in her gaze that you've not seen before. That no one has ever seen before on Antigone Singh's face. It is a look of sedition. A look of treasonous rage. You call yourself heretic. And you know that it is an act of love. Heretic. And for the first time, that word doesn't sound like a blade coming out of Antigone's mouth. It doesn't sound like poison. It sounds like a pearl. A gleaming pearl cupped in the palm of her hand. Heretic. My mother was a heretic. My father was a heretic. My uncle, my brothers, my aunts, my cousins, they were all heretics. And I, I am nothing if not my mother's child. I am a heretic. A small smile breaks across Rune's face, rain streaked and soaked. And my divinity is still active. It's still awakened. And as Rune leans forward and kisses Antigone on the mouth, (gasps) I want to give her back what she tithed to the witness, and I want her to taste salted cucumber. Oh my god. Okay, you do it. Yes. Uh, you, You lean in, you kiss her, and Antigone stiffens for a half second, her eyes go wide with shock and surprise, and then she melts into the kiss. She lets you hold her by the small of her back. She drapes an arm over your shoulder and pulls you in close. And then you hear a soft noise as you know she tastes it. For the first time since she was 13, she tastes her favorite food. Her eyes fly open. Her mouth moves against yours for a fragment of a second. Rune? Rune takes her wrist, steps backward once, twice, pulls her against them, and tips backward off the top of the tower, sending them both into free fall. (gasps) Antigone gasps, but she doesn't scream. As the two of you fall down through this central hole of the tower, these ghosts of the gods are whipping and screaming and roiling like thunderclouds all around you, but you pass through them like they're nothing. 
For they're just transparent illusions, so false, so dreamlike, and yet so real, so solid. Every ghost you fall through is like a cold shudder through both of your nervous systems, passing through your souls, and you're flying, you're falling, you are falling and flying downward and downward, and you're holding Antigone in your hands, and she's holding you in hers as well. She's looking down at you with wide eyes, tears, I think, bubbling up at the corners of her gaze, and then flying upward as you're both plummeting and she says the words almost being snatched by the velocity of the wind around you but not quite she says down to you i'll see you on the outside see you princess ruin i and then antigone is gone and rune as you free fall you are left entirely alone in the tower God Killer First Blood is performed by Connie Chong and C. Thomas. Follow Connie on Twitter and TikTok at ByConnieChong, and C on Twitter at CPlaysRPG. To play your very own campaign of God Killer and support our show, pre-order God Killer First Blood Edition on itch.io today. Transplaner RPG is made possible by your Patreon contributions and sponsors who believe in our mission to tell great stories and lift up our community. Sponsors like ExplainTrade.com. Explain Trade is a negotiation skills consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines on Twitter, has asked us to say, and I quote, please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy giving all his money to trans and queer art and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and heed his words. Sign up for our Patreon today at patreon.com slash transplanerrpg. First Blood is also sponsored by Start Playing Games, the largest online platform for players to find tabletop role-playing campaigns of your very own. Join a table that fits your schedule today at startplaying.games. We are also sponsored by Magpie Games, the independent TTRPG publisher behind such incredible works as Masks A New Generation, Avatar Legends, Urban Shadows, Bluebeard's Bride, and much, much more. Check out their amazing selection of Powered by the Apocalypse games at magpiegames.com. Finally, we're proud to be sponsored by Roll. Roll is an online RPG platform that serves as a video-first alternative to complex virtual tabletops. Build, modify, and play your very own games of Godkiller on Roll today at playroll.com.